Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and this time round, well, time is the active word because we're talking about Doctor Who. Why are we talking about Doctor Who? Because it is celebrating quite remarkably its 60th anniversary as a TV show. Well done to everybody involved, both past and present. And I'm also going to put out there that, yes, I will not be doing an episode on time travel. It's not a thing. I know there are various conspiracy theories out there. Have no time for them. Again, no pun intended at that time round. I can't stop saying a word. Anyway, but what I will do is we'll have some fun with Doctor Who. Lots of fun with that. But then I'm going to go into the really unusual story of how people in the past have told time. And whatever year you think it is right now, it isn't. And I'll explain why later. This is a big one, so I better get on with it then. So, this is one of these remarkable TV shows that's been around longer than me. One of the reasons why I'm not a fan of the soap operas, and they're generally waning in popularity regardless because there is now drama on demand on things like Netflix and Amazon Prime, is because I don't like the idea of a TV show that could outlive me. I'll never get to know the ending of Blah, whereas at least with something like Breaking Bad, it's done. I can see all five seasons of it, and then if I want to see the other stuff as well, like Better Call Saul... Great, you know, it would have taken 10 years to have gone through the whole process, but it's done now, and it's not going to keep going for the next 60 years. So the idea, of course, with any of these things is there isn't any understanding at the beginning that this is going to catch fire and keep people interested, not for years, but for decades. It's a very rare occurrence of something like that. So we have to go back to the 23rd of November, 1963. When we get the first episode entitled An Unearthly Child with William Hartnell playing the Doctor. Yes, it all started out as a mild curiosity in the junkyard. And now it's turned out to be quite a, a, quite a great spirited adventure, don't you think? 
Now, in the first episode, we get to see how there is some stuff there that has stayed there forever, and other stuff they're still working out, because the Doctor has a granddaughter there. And that's a problem, because it wasn't quite worked out in the first episode whether the Doctor was actually human or an alien. And moving forwards, because obviously it's a kid's show, Lots of people have grown up with it. Lots of people have had love with it. You've now had the people who used to watch it on TV being actual Doctor Whos or writing for the show. They must be so happy about this. But the point is, it's always aimed at the kids. It's scary, but it's not Exorcist Shining levels of scary, which wouldn't be allowed on tea time or on a Saturday for children to watch. And because of that, we're simply not going to have a Doctor who is the time-travelling Casanova. So, always very chaste with all of his followers that he has and all the people who end up coming with him on the TARDIS, time and relative dimension in space. And it was one of these first things that started playing around with physics. The remarkable thing about the TARDIS is... We've now seen elements of that in things like Interstellar and TV shows like Foundation. A tesseract is something that's in four-dimensional space and, in essence, it folds space in on itself so it's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. Or, in essence, it's got another dimension to move into that you can't perceive. And that's a real scientific concept which was being played very fast and loose with, with the original Doctor Who. Ah, it's bigger! Oh, yes. Yeah. the inside. Look, we need to concentrate. There it is! Yeah, I know where you're going with this, but I need you to calm down. On the outside? Oh, you've certainly grasped the essentials. My entire understanding of physical space has been transformed! It is worth pointing out, to those of you who do not know anything about this, his name isn't Who. It is actually said a couple of times in the early episodes that he is referred to as Doctor Who, and there's been various jokes about who's the Doctor, etc. So people have fun with it, but the, he refers to himself as just the Doctor. I'm the Doctor. Who are you? Yes, you are. You are the Doctor. And it's really important that he does, because as soon as you give him any kind of name, it's either going to sound ridiculous, it's like, well, that's clearly what a 1960s sci-fi show thought an alien name was, or if they're called something like Derek, that's not very exotic. Because of that, just keeping him with a title, and of course the idea with the Doctor is a Doctor is somebody who is instantly smart. Either they are a literary Doctor, a Doctor of the arts, or they are a medical doctor, somebody to heal. It's a good word. Instantly, we know that they're somebody that we should be listening to. And then when we later on come across the Master, another Time Lord from Gallifrey, well, the Master shows dominance. It shows instantly with the title that his purpose is very different to the Doctor. And then many years later, we get John Hurt playing the War Doctor, which, again, it's why he's not in the official canon of the Doctors. They have fun with that title, and compared to the first series, so much importance and almost philosophy has been put on the title. It's one of these rare things where, as years went on, more effort was put into it, at least for a time. Because 
what happens in season four, about halfway through season four, it's not the last episode, you get William Hartnell, who was an older man, who was suffering with severe health issues, and he kept doing Doctor Who because he knew how much the kids loved it, but he was getting sicker and sicker. And so the writers came up with the idea that the Doctor, because he's an alien, it's like, well, let's have him reincarnate. And therefore, in reincarnation, don't have to have the same actor. Now, it wasn't called reincarnation because that would have a religious connotation to it. And so you do get this regeneration. This rebirth is literally what that means. And he turned from William Hartnell to Patrick Troughton. And Patrick Troughton was very different. For starters, William had white hair. Patrick Troughton had a sort of Beatles haircut with the thick black hair. And he was more playful. He would play the recorder. So in other words, it allowed the writers to every now and then completely freshen up the character, make them do things differently, have the character interpreted in a different way. And the kids went with it. There was a huge amount of anxiety. We're taking away the title character and replacing them. Any time in a TV show where you replace a beloved character with a new actor, obviously in normal life, that's not a thing. So we we get this sort of fourth wall break as we realize, oh, that actor clearly asked for too much money. That's why they're not coming back for the sequel or series five or whatever. But with this, it was deliberate. It was because William Hartnell was becoming frail. And, you know, I just have so much love for the guy, the way that he pushed himself because he wanted to entertain children. Is there any more noble a thing to do? Once we're into Troughton, everybody runs with it and that allows them to then just keep doing it. Now, what I find interesting is I've spoken to both Greg and his wife about this, who are about 15 years my junior, and they are of the generation where they did not grow up with Doctor Who. It ran from 1963 to 1989. And then there was a break. There was briefly, I'm not going to count it, there was a Doctor Who TV movie, and indeed Greg remembers that one being on TV. It was a bit of an event because we hadn't seen any Doctor Who for quite some time, years, maybe a decade, but it was aimed really at the American market because America's got more money than the BBC. And looking at the 1960s and 70s Doctor Who's now, you can tell that the scripts are pretty good because the special effects are £4.50 and that's clearly an egg box sellotaped to somebody's chest, sprayed silver. It was low rent, doesn't really hold up to scrutiny of the HD world, shall we say, to be polite. But... It thrilled the kids, and I'll be coming on to my stuff for a moment, but going back to Greg and Felicity, they just didn't have any fond memories of childhood watching Doctor Who. So when it came back, when it got rebooted in 2005, the BBC put a lot of time, energy, and budget into it. It was an IP that was much beloved. It was an opportunity. By now, we've got the kids who were watching the TV show as kids, now writing it, understanding what makes it tick, getting things like actual actors now well-respected who want to give Doctor Who a bit of a go. And it was a huge ratings winner and also a huge critical success as well. People saw it back. And then 
it really did have a high point for about 10 years as they went through three new doctors, let's call it sort of into the fourth doctor, but for about a decade it was appointment viewing. People were willing to get off Netflix to see the latest series of Doctor Who. But like anything, after a while, the novelty wears off, not every episode's going to be as well written, there are some various gems in there, no pun intended, but the David Tennant period is probably the peak period of the new era. See, that's the thing. I'm a doctor, but beyond that, I, I just don't know. I literally do not know who I am. It's all untested. Am I funny? Am I sarcastic? Sexy? Vital misery? Life and soul? Right-handed, left-handed, a gambler, a fighter, a coward, a traitor, a liar, a nervous wreck? I mean, judging by the evidence, I've certainly got a goal. David Tennant was so into it, you believed him, and he was a bit younger, a bit more vibrant, dare I say it, even a little bit handsome as well, something for the ladies. And so you then get, later on, two doctors down, you got Peter Capaldi, a bit older. Literally, there is a letter that he wrote into the Doctor Who annual and the Radio Times when he was a teenager, talking about how much he loved being Doctor or loved Doctor Who, the TV show, and there he gets to play him, which is obviously about as much fun as you're going to get. And obviously Peter Capaldi was well known as being a very aggressive, very sweary PR guy in the thick of it and in the loop, plays the same character, but here he's being far more child-friendly, thank goodness. But the thing is, by Peter Capaldi's time, there were some episodes that were amazing, there were some episodes that were, yeah, fine. I don't think there are any bad episodes, really, in the modern Doctor Who. Very rarely are there bad episodes. But overall, over a decade and more, it was beginning to lose its its shine. However, to give you an idea of Peter Capaldi, I'm not going to... Off the top of my head, I can't remember what this one's called. But we kept watching it, and there is just one episode that's self-contained, which is brilliant. The Doctor wakes up in this castle, and he's being hunted by this thing. And... There seems to have been a time jump, but he says, I can't feel the time jump. No time travel has occurred. It's a brilliant self-contained episode, and it comes to the fact that this creature just will not stop. It's not fast, but it will keep moving, so he's going to run out of energy at some point, and he realises that the switch that he needs, the thing he needs to do to end this, is behind a wall made of diamond. So when he gets there, he rather futilely punches it a few times, it makes no difference to the wall whatsoever, and then he's got. And then he wakes up, and it's the same thing, and you realise he's in a time loop, and you realise why he's in the time loop later on. It is one of the greatest episodes of any kind of TV ever, because it works on so many different levels. Going back to David Tennant, perhaps the greatest episode ever, he's hardly in it. It's to do with the introduction of the Weeping Angels, where, again, it's almost like a time loop episode, but it's so clever. It shows you how good these writers are when, they're, when they pour in their heart and soul into them. And there's no doubt that the new version is superior to the old version. But, as somebody who did grow up in the 1970s, Tom Baker, with his jelly babies and his very long scarf, it's interesting that when people describe Doctor Who, it tends to be the Tom Baker. He was so outlandish. His wild eyes, his curly mane of hair, his hat, his big long scarf, as I said. Everything weird and kooky about British science fiction is basically distilled into 
Tom Baker there. And I was lucky enough to have him as my first Doctor. And I remember some of the, the Dalek episodes. So let's talk about, I've mentioned perhaps the greatest recent Doctor Who villain, the Weeping Angels, where the idea is, if you blink, this is why the episode's called Blink, they are statues and they look like statues of angels. But every time you blink, every time they're not observed, they stop being stone, they become a creature and they move closer to you and they move fast. So if you blink and you're in the same room as one of them, by the time you open your eyes and a blink is very, very quick, it's suddenly in your face. It is a brilliant horror trope which doesn't need a lot of special effects money and it's just, it's just brilliant. And I thoroughly recommend you check out Blink. I remember showing it to a friend of mine, a fully grown man, and I showed it to him in his apartment, in his flat, and we watched it in daylight, and he said to me at the end of it, he turned around, I'm really glad you were with me when I was watching that, because that was full on. And that was the thing. My mother used to say that I used to watch Doctor Who with part of my body behind the sofa, and I'd watch it, and I'd be glued to it, but when it all got a bit too much, I'd just sort of like hide behind the sofa for a few seconds, and then I'd peep out again. It's like, okay, I'm going to keep watching. I, I couldn't help myself, and I think I've said this before in another podcast, but somebody once said, and I love this idea, that fear without death equals fun, and that's basically what Doctor Who is. It's a horror show for kids. Now, Originally, in the very first Doctor Who, back to William Hartnell, there's a moment where he's thinking about killing a caveman, and he doesn't do it. And there was an idea by the BBC, who is aiming to educate people, that maybe, because he's time-travelling, he will jump from the Romans to the Renaissance to World War One and teach kids a little bit about history. And it could have gone that direction and would have been a successful TV show. But they realised very quickly that when he went to Alien Planet, that got a lot more viewers and kids talked about it a lot more. And something like the Daleks, which in essence is a micro-tank, for the generation growing up after World War II, people get the idea of an indestructible steel skin. And the idea of the Daleks just being pure hatred, they cannot be reasoned with. This is the Terminator before the Terminator was even invented. They are a brilliant invention with their harsh voices and their, their need to exterminate, etc. Exterminate him! Exterminate him! Obviously the joke was that they seem to have been on rollers on a BBC soundstage, so how are they going to get up those stairs? And it is worth pointing out that in 1989 there was an episode which showed them go upstairs. So disproving the theory that to conquer the world they would not be able to get up any of the stairs. So you just go to the first floor and you'll be fine. So that was even proved in the original version of Doctor Who, but then was further accentuated in their flying in the new version of Doctor Who. So I have a lot of love for this TV show. I just wanted to do a shout out to Sylvester McCoy. Now, I think that David Tennant's probably the greatest Doctor Who ever. I would put Tom Baker in at number two. And you're talking about two giants of this TV show. A lot of people, people might argue about where to put other people, but they're going to say, yeah, you picked two strong ones there, Jem. But Sylvester McCoy, the last Doctor of the original run up until 1989, I loved him. He had this little twinkle in his eye. He was middle-aged, so he was still more energetic than some of the other Doctors, but he always looked like he was one step ahead. And I, I've always liked him, and therefore, when I saw that he had been made Radagast the Brown in the Hobbit movies, I knew he would definitely do a great job of it. 
but he would had that sparkle to it as well. But I have a fun story about Sylvester McCoy. I have a friend who is on the very edges of the film industry, and he knows Sylvester McCoy, and he needed to meet Sylvester McCoy. However, he lives in America, and he was in London for a short amount of time. Sylvester was at one of these exhibition-type things, Comic-Con-type things in London. So, my friend, I won't name him because I don't want to embarrass anybody here, my friend, he wanted to also hang out with me, so he got me a ticket, and the two of us went in there. Now, if you've never been to one of these places before, the idea is that all these people who might have been third stormtrooper in Empire Strikes Back, or they might have had four lines in a Star Trek episode from 1968, and these people now, they're pension basically their retirement fund is doing all these conferences and you pay for like a five minute meet and greet ask them a few questions your favorite questions have a photo taken with them get a signature i have no idea how much they cost obviously the price depends on how famous you are if you're meeting harrison ford for example not that he would ever do something like this but somebody like sylvester mccoy absolutely he's been in the hobbit movies and he's been a doctor who but you can imagine that somebody who's willing to pay for five minutes to have a meet and greet well sylvester mccoy is a very hardcore hoovian as they're called and perhaps not the most socially adept individuals i'm being super polite here okay and so my friend walked past the entire queue because he wanted to talk to sylvester about legitimate business stuff shall we say and as soon as Sylvester saw my friend, he went, ah, oh, you know, the two clearly knew each other. But I stood on the sidelines and I was watching the guy, because they're all guys, who was psyching himself up to finally meet one of his heroes. And to have this very confident guy with a tan and a bit of an American accent just sweep in, he had no idea how to handle that. All he could see is that the man that he'd been psyching himself up to see was now completely distracted and not going to engage with him. It's like, well, I paid my money. I'm, it's nearly my time. What's going on? And, and so Sylvester and my friend just had a chat about business. And then my friend said, oh, I'm here with Jem. Please meet Jem. So I got to meet Sylvester McCoy, who was, you know, a great guy. I said, I have, I really loved you as the last doctor in the original stuff. And, you know, sort of thanked him for his time. So, but I wanted to get out of the situation because I could see that this man was getting more agitated because it's like hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you that's right we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. 
Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What do I do with this first guy? Oh my God, they brought in another guy. How many people are going to bring in before me? Now, obviously, they were going to still honor his time. But it was just a wonderful moment of anxiety in the nerd world that made me feel like an alpha nerd. Okay, so I'm certainly not a macho guy, but I guess I had one over that particular individual and I felt for them, absolutely felt for them. What I wanted to say, though, is the current run of Doctor Who is not without its controversies. In 2020, there was an infamous episode called The Timeless Children. This is when the Doctor was now Jodie Whittaker, which caused a bit of a stir to begin with. It's like, oh, we've now got a woman. And it's now been a conversation. It's fair that over 60 years it's been played by white people and only for a short amount of time by a woman. So let's add a bit of diversity because, let's face it, he's a shape-shifting alien or they are a shape-shifting alien, so why not? But the thing is, though, we've had specific regenerations and the Doctor has been a specific individual. But The Timeless Children, written by Chris Chibnall, came up with this idea that the Doctor has been regenerated not the canon 12 times, but thousands of times, hundreds of times, and is a great fighter for justice across the time stream and da-da-da-da-da. And that got a lot of pushback. And what I would say to Chris Chibnall is... I'll give you 10 out of 10 for coming up with something new. Refreshing a character that was nearly 60 years old. But you threw the baby out with the bathwater. You changed completely what the Doctor was to almost an idea. And I understand why people got annoyed by that one. I didn't even watch it. By then I'd given up on the show. But it was like, it's not Doctor Who anymore. It's like if you found out that James Bond pulls off a mask and was secretly three children in a coat how about that it would be something similar to that so it doesn't always step in the right direction indeed in the 1980s particularly under Sylvester McCoy there were a number of complaints going it's getting a bit too scary but also by then the BBC didn't quite know what to do with it it was one of these things where look it had run for more than 25 years and it was never meant to have run that long I get why they might have wanted to shelve it for a while and it was all the better for it because we then got at least 10, maybe 15 years of great sci-fi children's programming from 2005 onwards. Right, okay, I think I have sold you that Doctor Who is an important phenomenon which is really popular in the rest of the world as well. A big cult following in America too, but it's all about time. So let's talk about what is that? Well, one of the theories, according to physicists, is it's one of the dimensions. We have a dimension, basically we talk about three dimensions, the X, Y, and Z axis to make something 
three-dimensional rather than just flat on a piece of paper, like you, for example. But there is a fourth dimension, because if we're ever going to meet, we need to know not just where is it, we need to know when is it as well. And clearly something passes, because not all chemical reactions, reactions at a physics level, sometimes they're almost instantaneous, but almost nothing is instantaneous. So something has to pass, be it time, or a minute, or a plank length of time, etc. So here's the thing. I am recording this in the year 2023. You may indeed, and indeed 2023, November the 23rd, will be the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who. But is it the year 2023? You see, the thing is, if you ask a scientist, they'll say, well, it's been about 13.8 billion years since the Big Bang, and that's the only universal time that makes any sense at a scientific level. So let's get away from the physics, shall we? And instead go to how humanity has tried to measure time. The very first example of a people trying to clearly measure out lengths of time is actually a series of stones that are mirroring the procession of the moon waxing and waning over a month period of time. And these series of stones, you might think, and there they are in the deserts of the Sahara, built by the ancient Egyptians. No, these are eight and a half thousand years old in Aberdeenshire, Scotland, which is not an area you tend to think of ancient scientific innovation, but good on Scotland. It was in no way called Scotland eight and a half thousand years ago, but well done to those people there. And the next major innovation in or provable example of people trying to see the transit of time is again in the far west of Europe. We're talking about Newgrange, which is in Ireland. It's 5,200 years old. For the record, Stonehenge is about 4,400 years old. So these things are much, much older. And this is a Neolithic passage to tomb. It looks like a big mound and it's got a hole in it, and it's got a passageway that leads to a tomb. Archaeologists aren't trying to get super clever with their names for the record, so hence, passage, tomb, got it everybody? Good, excellent. So the thing is that it's arranged so that on the winter solstice, in the shortest day of the year, when the sun rises, it goes directly down that passage and hits the tomb wall at the back of this artificial hill. This is an incredible example of the technology around in the Neolithic. That's part of the Stone Age. It means New Stone Age era. So it's amazing that you've got this and it's not as well known as something like Stonehenge or the pyramids, which it is more than a thousand years older than either of those things. So let's jump forwards a little bit. So we get to the ancient Egyptians and the Sumerians. These are two of the earliest civilizations that invented writing independently, but they didn't work on the decimal system. Decimal means 10, okay? And that's how we do things like working out money, etc. A meter is 100 centimeters and so on and so forth. There are 10 millimeters to a centimeter, etc. They instead worked on the duodecimal system, and they were the ones who broke up the day into various forms of twelves. This is why we have got 
60 minutes in an hour. This is why we've got 24 hours in a day. All this stuff works up 60 seconds to a minute. And all of this is down to civilizations that just don't exist anymore. And they were working this out at the maybe the end of the Stone Age, maybe the start of the Bronze Age or Copper Age. Very, very early technology going on there. And yet they're working out a way to split up the day. Indeed, the Egyptians invent the sundial, pretty natural seeing all the sun in Egypt, about 3,200 years ago. It takes quite a long time for it to spread into things like the Roman era. And indeed, when it starts appearing in the Roman era, or the Roman Empire, I should say, which started when the Romans started interacting with the Egyptians, so it's, we're talking about the first century BC here, it's wonderful. It becomes a, a thing of fashion, showing off to the Joneses next door, or the Brutai, etc. And it's interesting that there are a few records of older, more curmudgeonly writers going, oh, these newfangled things, the kids and their sundials. It's a bit like today when you read something like the Daily Mail going off about why the kids keep hanging on their phones, etc. But that attitude towards technology, you can see, is more than 2,000 years old. Then, more recently, there's the Clysedra water clock. That's from Greece about 2,600 years ago. That actually spread all the way to China and Japan. Their water clocks came after the Greek one, probably influenced by the Greeks, eventually traded across the Eurasian steppe. But the thing is, it started with Greece. Then we've got something like, I'm going to sort of like keep fast forwarding. Then let's talk about the Roman Empire. Because we talk about, as I said, 1st century BC. But the thing about BC is we know that it's BC stands for before Christ. Julius Caesar didn't know that he was invading England in 55 BC. That wasn't a number that he could ever possibly know. So how did they measure time in the Roman Empire? I, I always wondered that and I've got an answer for you here. Maybe you want to pause it for a moment and think if you know the answer and see if you're clever or not. So the answer is it's down to the actual emperor reigning. So you wouldn't turn around and say it's 3 AD because, again, that wouldn't mean anything. Instead, you might turn around and say it's the 14th year of the reign of Augustus or it's the seventh year of Tiberius's reign because people didn't need to know what happened 500 years earlier. So it was just a case of what year is it right now? In terms of the administration, we've got an emperor, what's going on? Now, it gets problematic when you get things like the year of the four emperors. So, you know, how do you time that? But in general, emperors tended to rule for years. So you could say third year of Hadrian's rule, etc. So that's the answer there. Now let's fast forward a little bit further to 723 AD, where we get the Haixing clock in China in 723 AD. So that is the first written evidence of a clock. We don't have the original timepiece, but it was in China in the first millennium. Now, I find it interesting that the oldest clock in the world that's still working is from 1335. That's amazing. This is from the reign of Edward III. This clock started before the Black Death reached Britain 
and is still working in the 21st century. But what's interesting is in Salisbury Cathedral, it doesn't have a face, and therefore we don't know if the Ising clock did either. But what it is, is it's connected to bells. So it rings bells on the hour, which is all you really need to know. You don't, in the peasant life in the Middle Ages, you don't need to know everything down to the second. But what's interesting is that when we start talking about the calendar, I'm going to get a bit complicated and weird here for a moment. So, first of all, at the time of Julius Caesar or Augustus, or indeed 1335 and Edward III, we're talking about the Julian calendar, because it was at the time of Julius Caesar. We don't know for a fact if he started naming months after him or came up with this calendar, but it certainly happened under his rule. Maybe he was involved, or maybe he just patted on the head of the clever person who did it and said, I'm going to take that. I really like the month of July, and I'm going to call it Julius after me. But the point is the Julian calendar had worked out that it was 365 days a year and a quarter, and therefore there was needed to be a leap year every four years to make it all add up properly, which is pretty impressive at the time of the water clock and the sundial. So well done to the Romans to work that out. Except we now know it isn't quite like that. And actually, it isn't as neat as 365 and a quarter. That actually things are running slightly slower than that. And it makes no difference over a decade. Doesn't really make any difference over a century. But over a thousand years, now we're starting to notice that there are some problems. And so the Julian calendar was used up until 1582, when Pope Gregory the Thirteenth, he wasn't the first person to work it out, but he got fed up with the fact that clearly the calendar is now off from what's actually happening over the course of the year, and so it was all reset with very minor time amendments to the fact that taking into account that now we were better, more precise at measuring time, and so that's the Gregorian calendar. And that is the calendar used in the modern world. But it wasn't picked up everywhere. It wasn't immediately picked up in England, for example, because England in 1582 was under Queen Elizabeth I, who was referred to by the Catholics, including the Pope, as the heretic queen. So she was not going to start having May when the Pope tells her it's time for May. So it took time for it to be introduced in England. It was immediately introduced in places like France and Italy. It took until the 20th century for it to be introduced in Tsarist Russia. Well, actually, after the Tsars. But it means things like the October Revolution, according to our calendar, actually happened in November. It's like, why do you call it the October Revolution? Because it was October in Russia. It's so confusing. But there we go. So just because of that, and to this day, we are still tweaking that calendar. Every now and then, there's an announcement amongst geeks, of which I am one of them, that there will be a leap second at the end of the year. If you ever phone up the talking clock, which is something that people don't do anymore, but it's linked to Greenwich, which is the epicenter of, of specific timekeeping, they will, if you phone it up, it goes, the time at the third beep will be 12.32 precisely. Beep, beep, beep. And then you now know it's 12.32 precisely, and you can set your watch to it. It is run by an atomic clock, which is accurate to within 
Planck amounts of time and would only be off by like one second every million years. It's that precise, much better than anything that you got on your wrist. So what's interesting is I remember the last time they announced there was going to be a leap second and I listened to the talking clock. That's why I'm a geek, okay? I do this stuff so you don't have to. And it's always, if you phone it up, it's three beeps. And then at midnight, it was four beeps. So I heard that extra second. <laughs> and that means nothing to you. Right, so let's move to a completely different civilization, the Aztecs. Now, you may remember that people were freaking out that in 2012, on December 25th, the Aztec calendar was going to run out. Well, that's a complete misreading of the Aztec calendar, because they had two. They had the long count, and they had the short count. The short count was meant for basically day-to-day -day activity. The short count ran for 52 years, which is about the length of time and a person was going to live in the Aztec Empire. So because of that, it was the useful day-to-day -day calendar. The long count was for observing celestial movement, which did take sometimes centuries. So the long count was taking into account centuries of time. Short count was taking into account human time, and the, yes, the long count was finishing in 2012 on December 25th, which all sounds very momentous to us, but not to the Aztecs. But do you know what the next day was going to be? Not Armageddon, not Doomsday or anything like that. It started the next long count, because it's the same thing as when you're watching your milometer on your, or indeed New Year's Day, it just goes back to January. It's not the end, you don't fall off the edge of the calendar or anything like that. So there we go. Now, I mentioned Greenwich, and in 1878, we have Sanford Fleming, a, a Canadian for the record, who worked out the time zones, worked out the time was different in somewhere like Singapore than London. And so he measured out across the longitudes of the world, and that was basically to work out for now we're into the 19th century, we've got faster shipping and things like that, and steam trains, and so this time difference was beginning to be noticed, and as Britain had a maritime empire and the largest empire in the world, we really needed to know what time it was in somewhere like Hong Kong, because that was important when working out shipping manifests. So 1878, we now get the whole world being split up into time zones. But... What year is it? I said earlier, it's not 2023, and I can tell you the reason for that, because in Roman numerals, what is one? You're going to turn around and say, it's, it's I, or one. And if I ask you what's ten, you're going to go X, and you're right. But if I ask you what's the Roman numeral for zero, you're going to be stuck, because the Romans didn't invent zero, they didn't know about the zero, it was invented in India, and by the time it got through to Europe via Islamic mathematics, there was a problem with zero. Cutting a long story short, zero, it's a positive number, and it's void, it's null, it's nothing. It is interesting, we don't talk about zero. We still, to this day, have a weird relationship with zero. Don't believe me? Look at where it is on a calculator, or on your keyboard, where it comes after nine. It shouldn't, it should come before the one, surely. It also looks the same on the phone, so it's always other and different and off. We, it's weird, and this is partly to do with the church, because the church didn't really have a problem with the number 666, which is just a coded number for Nero. Let's not go there. But zero, that's a truly evil number, because zero is the void. And if you know your Bible, what lives in the void? The devil. So 
zero wasn't used very often in medieval mathematics. Indeed, in some places it was banned for a time. It's why we have different names for it. Zero is the technical name. But in football in England, if it's a zero at the end of the match, it's called nil. In tennis, it's called love. We sometimes call it O as well. It's weird. We've got all these different names, and yet the number three, there's only one name for it. It's the number three. It just is. So, why am I telling you all of this? Well, what year was Jesus born? If we talk about AD and BC, well, we go down towards the end of BC, and then we're going to tick into AD. So, if 1 BC, what comes next? And the answer is, well, if you think of a graph, well, the, the baseline is zero, isn't it? But that's not what happened. It went from 1 BC to 1 AD, and it was never amended by the church, because you can't have Jesus Christ born on 0 AD. What, the number of the beast, the, the number of the devil? No, we can't have the Christ figure being born on the worst number. So just neatly ignored, and it just skipped one year to 1 AD. There was never a zero. So what does that mean? It means even today in the 21st century, our entire calendar is off by one year. Everybody, you think it's 2023? Welcome to 2022. That's actually the year if you add it up logically and mathematically. But the thing is, of course, I'm talking about the Christian calendar. And I know that modern day archaeologists and historians talk about BCE, before common era, and CE, common era. Look, I'm not religious, but we're using exactly the same dating system as the Christian calendar. So BC, AD, it works fine. AD, year of our Lord. That echoes the whole Roman way of doing it. In the year of our Emperor Hadrian three, and it's then turned into in the year of our Lord, 127, and so on and so forth. Yes, according to Christians, it's 2023. It isn't, it's 2022. But to the Jewish faith, they measure it from the beginning of time, basically, which means that they're at 5,783. According to the Muslims, who set it from the time that the Prophet Muhammad left Mecca to go to Medina and found the first Islamic group, it's the year 1445. And in North Korea, which isn't going to follow any religion, they follow it from the birth of the founder of North Korea, which is Kim Jong-un's grandfather. So it's the year 112. All of these are, of course, completely irrelevant. It is 13.8 billion years since the Big Bang. That's it from me, and as always, another episode coming soon.